Hey, and we're back. This is the Soybean Pest Podcast. My name is Matt O'Neill. And hi, everyone. I'm Erin Hodson. And we are broadcasting today in Season 11, Episode 2. We're back into it, Erin. Soybean Pest Podcast. Here we go. Oh, my God. When was the last time we did two back-to-back episodes like this? It was a different decade. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. But we're into it. We're committed. And frankly, um, we've got the time in some ways because... We're still, uh, we're still dealing with the pandemic. So you have the money and the time. Is that how the song goes? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm the other side of that song. Oh, you got the money, honey. I got oh. the time. Oh, okay. And well, it's going to be a short along, podcast then. Well, no, not if you bring along your Cadillac. I'll <laughs> leave my wreck behind. Oh, oh my gosh! We've already we got derailed. Ty- we got two types of music here. Country and Western. And this is what the people listen for. They want the side conversation, but we also give them the steak with the two veg. Let's give okay. them some meat, Aaron. Let's give them some soybean pest meat. Okay, let's go. What's been, uh, what's up? What's up in the soybean? Heck, what's up in the field crop world? It's still oh, early, right? I mean, we've had a little bit of heat, but it got a little cool and wet. So what are we doing? It got with? real cold and it, nip some plants, I think, definitely stunted growth, um, killed some plants in some cases because of the frost or near frost conditions that we had. So there's been some chatter about some replants or, you know, reduced stand counts and what does that mean for farmers. But hopefully we've turned a corner and now things will continue to stay warm and let plants grow. And then with that, the insects will continue to grow. Yeah, so we had frost warnings through what, like half of the state? Yeah. Over the weekend into the early part of this week. Mm -hmm. And looking forward, I was looking at the uh, forecast for next week up into the 80s. That is a remarkable Big swing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And so if you are following along with our ICM blog and news, you may be familiar with uh, the moth trapping network we have here at Iowa State. And Ashley Dean, she's an extension entomologist in my lab, has been coordinating that moth trapping network. And it's interesting because she reported some significant flights of black cutworm into Iowa. But as she was doing a little bit of digging, um, just with the limited research sets out there, um, black cutworms are pretty susceptible to cold temperatures. So unless it was an egg that was deposited, they they likely didn't make it over the weekend. And so- This is happy news. Well, yeah. And so it, it- it, it, it's interesting that there might be heavy numbers coming in, but did they survive the weekend? I have no idea. So the scouting part of that in corn is really important right now because maybe you did have, you know, a, a flight into your area, but maybe they didn't survive. I don't know. So that, that's kind of what I've been thinking about this week. You know, you know what we should do? We hmm. should get Ashley on this podcast. Heck yes, we should. She's good. She's very good. She's the best. And, so one one thing about that, I, I say this in class that you don't want the weatherman to be your pest manager. You, know, yeah. you can't rely on the weather to um, help knock back the insects. And there are times, especially in the winter and spring, that weather can be your friend if you're trying to manage insects because they're cold blooded and they don't do well unless they reach a certain threshold temperature. But Temperatures are measured at a scale that don't often reflect what's going on in your field. Uh, and without that kind of information, it's really hard to know if you um, 
if you got the benefits of, say, a frost or an extended cold period. So scouting. Yeah. I agree. And we, we briefly mentioned painted ladies being cited in Iowa. And I imagine that they're, the adults are not very cold hardy either, but it doesn't mean that we won't have subsequent migration here from what we pests that, you know, species that we consider pests. And so even if we did have kind of a wipeout of last weekend, it doesn't mean that you should, you know, rest easy. There could be additional flights into our state that would be significant numbers. How long do you do your moth trapping for these migrating moths? Yeah, it's kind of wrapping up because after corn reaches a certain growth stage between V5 and V7, the, the, the activity doesn't become as important because the black cutworm wouldn't be able to, to clip off the plant anymore. The plant becomes too big. So it kind of depends on growth stage of the corn. But yeah, in the next week or two, it will quickly wrap up for another season. Is it only black cutworm that you're collecting in those traps? Are you guys looking at other migrating? Yeah, we also are monitoring for true armyworm. That's um, actually the pest that we're catching in larger numbers this year. And it it can injure corn. It doesn't quite snip off the top, kind of like black cutworm does, but it can defoliate corn and sometimes kill plants. Um, we just don't know as much about the injury potential as we do for black cutworm, but we, we would trap for both of those species in about a third of our counties this year. And are you looking at field, are you putting these traps out in, in sort of typical commercial fields? Yep. Yep. They and, would. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to step on that. Yeah. I mean, most of them would be in, in commercial or bulk fields, but we have a couple of the ISU research farm superintendents that are helping us um, with, they wouldn't be considered very large, but they would be you know, more <clears throat> research, so uh, smaller, but they would be also trapping at some of the farms. Okay. And I'm wondering if any of those farms have cover crops. Yes. And do you see any difference between fields with cover crops versus those without in terms of the moss you're trapping? Uh, I don't have enough information off the top of my head to tell you that, but uh, a lot of the research farms do have cover crop projects that that would be where I would expect to see more moth activity in mm -hmm. March and April because that's kind of the only thing that was green. But um, I don't have any data to back that up for 2020. Sure. Yeah, my, my sense from some work we did back, oh, now it's almost four, three, four years ago, was that, um, you know, the moths are coming into the state and that's just part of their general migratory movement at a continental scale. But then once they get into a region, they start looking for places that are best suited for their needs. And cover crop fields fit a lot of those needs. Yeah, and if, if people are having poor weed control, and that's been an issue with fields the last couple of years because we've had some tough springs. And so the weeds kind of get out of control. And if they green up again in the spring, sometimes that's, even if you don't have a cover crop, the, the weeds are attractive for egg laying sites too, I think. Yeah. Um, anything more about that that we should talk about, share with our one listener? <laughs> um, that's, that's the main thing that I'm thinking about right now is, is, is protecting early vegetative corn. A lot of the, the soybean is coming up pretty nice too, if it didn't get, um, zapped last weekend. And so that's growing, uh, or will resume growing at a pretty good pace. I hope this weekend. Um, a couple other things that I wanted to throw out in terms yeah. of pests, and some of these are, not things that we're going to see in the field, but 
we'll likely see later in the year. So I've been okay. um, doing what I think a lot of people are doing in, in urban areas, doing a lot of gardening as part mm. of this sort of shelter in place and social isolation. And I've been a little bit shocked at how many chafers I'm seeing and how many grubs I'm seeing close to the soil surface. And I'm, I'm shocked by this because uh, one, you know, I have a fairly nice yard. <laughs> but okay, Aaron, for the, for our listener, Aaron's eyes went big on that, and that's uh, you know a, a response I wasn't expecting. But I can understand why she gave that response because Aaron's yard is her grass is much much greener than mine. But well, anyway, this isn't you kind of have like a low lying cover, as I remember. I know I have a lot of trees. Yeah, right? so it's, it's, it's hard to keep turf when you have such mature trees. See, that's been my management practice for grubs. I don't have a lot of turf. Therefore, I don't have a lot of grubs. See how yeah. that works? But shockingly, uh, quite a few as I was digging up the soil. And again, close to the surface, which suggests to me that even though it's been cold, the air temperature has been cold, maybe the soil temperature isn't as cold as uh, we feel it to be, You know, at least we feel the air to be. And those grubs are doing okay. Um, and I saw adult chafers, adult, uh, you know, the, the adult version of those grubs, um, crawling around and being active. Some I think that's would, pretty typical, isn't it? Like grubs and wireworms feed early in the spring as soil temperatures warm up. And then when it gets warmer, then they tend to either cease development for the year if they have a multi-year life cycle or yeah. move on to a pupa. Yeah. And I, I guess the reason I'm saying I was shocked is it's, it's been so cold. I didn't expect them to be up so high and, and, and the adults uh, present so soon. But mm. what is cold to me is not necessarily cold to them, especially critters that are in the soil. And the soil temperatures don't change as much as air temperatures. So even though we had a few days of frost warning, the soil temperatures don't vary as much. Yeah. Well, I think it, overall it's been generally a really nice spring for getting planting done. And yeah. Yeah. You know, except for like last week or so wasn't so nice, but I think that's why they're called May or June beetles, right? Because they pop out in May and June. Do they get called May beetles around here? I, in in yeah. Illinois, when I grew up, they were all June beetles because yeah. they showed up in June. So yeah, yeah a little bit earlier than June. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, just an eye out, you know, that uh, yeah. keep an eye out for, you know, there are other critters besides these moths and caterpillars that are active that might be causing damage to seedling um, stage crops, but also grubs. You mentioned a couple other wireworms um, that could uh, cause some pain to crops in the early stages of development. One other one that probably isn't going to affect crops right now and may not affect crops at all this year, but it's one that I've been noticing a lot. Um, And by a lot, it doesn't take a lot for me to notice these because they're relatively new. And I'm talking about the brown marmorated stink bug. This is Mm -hmm. where the music comes in. Dun, dun, dun. (sighs) So uh, Brown marmorated stink bugs, we've talked about this on this podcast in the past, mostly yep. to bring attention to it, to get it on your radar. You are one listener that it's not, a, it's an invasive insect and it's just now showing up in levels in Iowa where I think somebody who's not an entomologist would start to notice it because it's something that we're, uh, it's totally new. It's a stink bug that will find its way into our homes overwinter there and then move out into adjacent you know crops fields whatever 
And this summer, well, I'm sorry, this spring, I've noticed a lot of them showing up in my kitchen, in my living room, in part because the cat goes after them and also because my wife uh, says, can you do something about this? And I said, you know, I'm trying, honey, but I'm only one man. What can I do? So um, one thing I've uh, been in uh, in contact with some other entomologists, they've asked if we could do some trapping this year to confirm some models that have suggested that urban environments, urban areas are a source for these critters, that overwintering in the home is where they're going to establish and then spread into adjacent crop fields not clear that we're ever going to have enough of these that they're going to cause damage to our crops like they have in other places in the United States. But we don't know. We don't know. So is it, I mean, I, when you say that they prefer to overwinter in human structures, it reminds me of the multicolored Asian lady beetle, you know, getting into cracks yep. and crevices around yep. urban homes or even suburban rural type structures. Um, that they would prefer to overwinter in those places. Yeah, I don't know if we know enough yet about the preferences for overwintering. I mean, mm-hmm. they can overwinter in other things besides human structures. They tend to overwinter in trees in their native range. And there's some connection between brown marmorated stink bug and exotic, if not invasive, trees in the East Coast. Not, I'm not a forester, so I don't know quite what that tree community looks like in Iowa, but mm-hmm. given how prolificous they are, how they're able to attack a wide variety of crops and plants, my guess is if the conditions are right in a wooded area, they'll, they'll make do. Yeah. And yeah, so it, it's a little premature to start thinking about pest management for uh, corn and soybeans when it comes to brown marmorated stink bug. But I don't think it's premature to start educating ourselves on this and keeping an eye out because mm-hmm. it's something that can catch us by surprise. And it'd be good to know um, what you're looking for and how you might respond to it going forward. Yeah, I have also noticed grubs as I was doing yard work, uh, but I see those every spring and they're nice, big, plump, juicy ones. So like you said, they're kind of uh, ready to move on in their in their life cycle, but also what I've noticed this year, which I haven't really noticed in the past, are aureus or the minute pirate bug, and hashtag ginger problems. I really get a good size wealth when they um, get on my, you know, they just probe, uh, like you know when you're digging around and stuff, they're on you. I get a good size wealth from those pirate bugs. Arg. <laughs> hey, uh, reminds me. Of a joke, Aaron? Uh-oh, uh-oh. What's Go for a, it. What's a pirate's favorite letter? Arg. Mm, yeah, you would think R, but if you, if you really think about it, you might recall that the pirate's first love I... is the sea. Hmm. Can you insert one of those game show sounds? <laughs> oh my gosh, that was pretty good. One. That, was a good one. <laughs> that was pretty good. Hey, should we transition to uh, some other stuff? Yeah. Is there any other pest stuff we need to talk about? No, hit the highlights. But you know, when the temperatures resume and the plants grow, then the insects start to ramp up as well. So maybe more to talk about next time.
Yep. Oh, there's always more to talk about. Um, I want to talk uh, one thing not pest related, but a little bit sad, uh, worth noting the passing of Dr. Terry Irwin. Uh, passed away, uh, I think about a week ago. Yeah. Not somebody that uh, applied entomologist to work with insect pests would maybe be familiar with, but entomologists, uh, just people interested in biodiversity and life might recall Terry Irwin's work. He worked out of the Smithsonian and he had done uh, a series of studies in the 80s in, an, uh, in um, tropical forests of Central America. And he was, he was scouting those areas for um, insect diversity, specifically beetles. He was a, a beetle taxonomist, but also an ecologist. And one of the things he did was to fog the trees in these tropical forests and collect the insects that fell from it. And from those collections, he estimated how many insects were left to be identified. So we think, what, about a million, million and some change number of insects that um, have been identified and given names. But based on uh, Dr. Irwin's work, he was finding insects that had never been identified, coming from just one tree, one tree species in, in, I think it was in Panama. And from that, he was estimating that there is anywhere from 10 to 30 million species left to be identified of insects, mostly in tropical areas. And it was, a, it was a remarkable study, and it was, it was fairly simple, but a uh, but powerful one. And it got a bunch of us thinking more about biodiversity, especially in the tropics, but, um, but thinking about what we know and don't know. And uh, yeah, it, it, in some ways it was kind of hopeful. In some ways it was a bit humbling. And that's, uh, I think, a good mark of a good scientist if they can bring us to that point. So anyways... Yeah, he's very well known, of course, in our community, just, you know, almost like a uh, super famous living legend. And so it's a, it's a sad thing to hear about his death. And one last thing about that is I posted this on Facebook and I had a handful of people say they um, met with him, worked with him, and they all noted that tr he was a tremendously nice guy, mm -hmm. really enjoyable to work with. So, yeah, I think it reminds me of a quote from Mark Twain. So live that when um, your summons come, even the undertaker is sad to see you go. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Should we move on to something a little bit more lighthearted? Sure. I got a fun insect trivia for you. Fit? Yep. Bring it on. Okay. We're going to try a little bit different format. I, I'm going to steal a uh, trivia question format from a podcast that I listen to called Hang Up and Listen. These are guys that talk about sports. And they came up with this uh, trivia question format that listeners can play along with, but you and I can can carry on, okay? okay. All right, so when you, know, when you know the answer, all right, kind of raise your hand. Mm -hmm. right? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a I don't need, oh, maybe you could write this in the chat box. Yeah, you write your answer in the chat box. All right, because I'm going to give a series of facts about this insect. And the listeners can write their answer with each, after each series, uh, after each fact. Okay. And 
the facts are going to start with really obscure and they're going to get more and more specific. So at the end, you should be able to get it. So Aaron, you're going to write in the chat box after every, after a fact, um, your answer. Yes, sir. When you, when you have an answer. All right. Okay. All right. So you ready? Heck yes. All right. And if this works, maybe our listener can uh, let us know how well it went and we'll, we'll continue this format in the future. All right. So here it goes. Ready? Starts with, what crop pest is occasionally referred to with a word that was used historically to describe, quote, a pert, shallow-brained fellow, a puppy, a whippersnapper, a conceited fop or dandy? That's your first clue. Mm. Clueless. Keep, keep going on. All right. And again, you're going to type your answer in so you don't give away the correct answer to our listeners, mm -hmm. right? Okay. All right. Second clue. This word is skipjack. Word used to refer to this past. It's, a, it's an old-timey word. Skipjack. All right. Third clue. There are about 9,300 known species of this type of pest, this family of pests, and 965 species in North America. All right, all right, now we're on to the fourth clue. Some species are bioluminescent in both the larval and adult form, such as those of the genus Pyrophorus. All right, all right. These insects are semi-voltine. And recall that semi-voltine means they take more than one calendar year to develop. All right, we're on to, we're on to clue number six. The larvae develop in the soil. It's getting less helpful, actually, as you're giving more <laughs> clues. I have no idea what you're talking about. All right. So, um, again, listeners at home, don't be going on to Wikipedia. Don't be Googling. Googling. Let's see if you can do this. All right. Uh, this is clue number seven. The larval form is described by entomologists as remarkably sclerotized. What that means is the larvae have uh, really hard cuticle, ex their exoskeleton. They're not soft and uh, whitish like a grub or a maggot, but they're kind of long and, and hard and a little bit yellowish. All right, here's here, here, number nine. This, this one's going to, uh, oh, oh, she's, she's, uh, Aaron as, uh, written her answer in chat and yes your first one is correct well done well done but we'll keep going um the next clue is the adults have a spine on what's called the prosternum that can be snapped into a corresponding notch on the mesosternum producing a violent click that can bounce the beetle into the air yeah aaron's elaborated on her answer and she's locked in finally these insects in the family Elateridae are commonly called click beetles, but 
Oh, or gymnastic beetles, as Aaron just dropped in chat. Uh, but I think for the Soybean Pest podcast, we would know them as... Wireworm. A hard-bodied yeah. wireworm, right? Yeah, yeah. So, or skipjacks, if you're, uh, you know, fancy with your etymology and dropping some lingo that was uh, passed around in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I didn't realize that some wireworms uh, had bioluminescence. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I, for some reason, I thought that was a whole different family. But yeah, I think in the in the tropics, pyrophorus is uh, um, has been. Yeah, I don't know if it's common, but at least mm-hmm. enough that people kind of threw it. me off because some of the lightning bugs or fireflies, I didn't, I, I didn't recognize them as pests. Oh yeah, yeah. So I was kind what? of, I was, I was torn. Well, that's the beauty. You're in a red herring there, man. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So uh, I got a shout out to Wikipedia for some of these, but um, yeah, the skipjack—that is not a term I've ever heard. But I I think it's an English uh, derivation, like English, the England, the country. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they they have common names for insects that are a little bit different than ours. For example, um, they use the word. Oh, shoot. Now I'm blanking on this. Um, what do we call the uh, crane flies? The, what do we uh, call them? Yeah. The uh, maggot of a crane fly. Oh, shoot. Now I'm blanking. Maggot of a crane fly? I don't oh, know. Oh, you know what? I'm going to save that one. I'm saving that one for another fit. Never mind. All right. Don't, don't want to use it all up in one day. All right. All right so... Uh, <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that. Maybe our listener can give us some feedback if that format works. It's fun. I am generally not good at recall of like families and stuff. So not my forte. Well, and yeah, and and it was pest related, right? Because I've I've gotten some comments from certain people on the podcast staff that have said some of my trivia are a little bit trying to reel it back in, trying to make it pest related. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Wireworms, tricky pest to deal with, right? I mean, uh, they usually have a multi, like you said, two or more year life cycle. So it it can be more of a longer term issue instead of just a year to year thing. If you have wireworms, typically you would for a couple of years. What would you, how would you manage wireworms if you had a, an outbreak or a field where you had a population that was causing you? Yeah, uh, it probably would be a situation where I would recommend a seed treatment when normally I would not. Yeah, and yeah. Um, to plant later because as we said before, like wireworms and grubs resume activity really early. And then as the season warms up, they sort of quiet down. And so to plant later with a seed treatment, I think you'd have your best chances of uh, good emergence. Mm-hmm. Why not crop rotation? Or I think that- they, they'll eat corn or soybean roots. Oh. I don't know about like alfalfa or... Uh, what are some other crops that people grow? I heard some people like to grow small grains. What? 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 I know. I don't know. Maybe they would like to eat that, but like normally they build up in like forages or pasture, you yeah. know, and then they transition to row crops and end up with a problem. But for those people that might like to grow something else besides corn and soybean, maybe that would be better. Yeah, I think wireworms are to use a word for the second time in this podcast. Polyphagous. They'll feed on a bunch of different stuff. And yeah. I think barley, peas, um, 
Yeah, they'll feed on those. They're past yeah. uh, of those crops in other areas of the country. Mm-hmm. To what extent they would be here? Probably because even though we have several species of wireworms, um, they all share some similarities in their ecology and, and being prolific is feeding on a bunch of different things, at least in the larval stages, is part of that ecology. So they're not crop rotation. No, no, I, neither am I. Um, oh, by the way, pulling away from uh, pests and stuff. Well, this, this has been a pest for me. My wife introduced peanut M&Ms into our social isolation. And I don't know why I'm exercising. There's no point. I, it's, abs begin in the kitchen and mine ended there with the peanut M&Ms. Like a bag of M&Ms and oh, some sweatpants. <laughs> I think we just got the name for uh, this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. Should we wrap up? I think so. It was a good one. Yeah, this was fun. All right. We're going to do this again next week, right? Yes. Because we're going to have so much to talk about. I think so, yeah. Maybe we could bring that Ashley character in on this. Let's do it. All right. Okay. All right. Well, you know where to find us. We're on the Internet. Erin will take questions. She loves questions. Hit her up on email, ewh at iastate.edu. I'll take questions too, and I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability. My email is O'Neill, that's spelled like Shaquille, O-N-E-A-L, at iastate.edu. You can find us on the web, Google us. Where else can they find us, Aaron? I mean, you'll be able to find our podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast subscriptions, you'll be able to find us there. Fantastic. Keep finding us. Keep listening. Yep. Talk to you later. Bye, everyone. Bye.